Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. As the 2024 presidential election approaches, the impact of generative AI on political campaigning looms large. Just this year, we've already seen political campaigns use the technology to subtly enhance and entirely fabricate political advertisements. Given the potential impact of AI on political ads heading into next year's contentious election, it's important that we understand how generative AI technologies may shape voter perspectives and behaviors and consider what strategies are needed to address relevant harms. I'm joined by the University of North Carolina's Matt Perot and Scott Brennan, who recently released a paper called The New Political Ad Machine, Policy Frameworks for Political Ads in the Age of AI. Matt is a professor at the UNC School of Information and Library Sciences and a consultant on technology policy issues. He previously led the Center on Science and Technology Policy at Duke University and was a professor at Duke's Sanford School of Public Policy. Before that, Matt was head of global public policy development at Facebook. Scott is the head of online expression policy at the Center for Technology Policy, where he leads the center's work on online expression, misinformation, and political advertising. Before joining UNC, he was an associate at Duke University. Prior to Duke University, Scott was a research fellow at the University of Oxford, where he led the research for Oxford Martin's program on misinformation, science, and media. Join us as we learn more about the importance of this rapidly evolving technology and its impact on the democratic process. Scott and Matt, thank you so much for being a guest today on Explain to Shane. You have written an amazing paper. It was so much fun to read the whole thing. And we are getting into a very interesting election cycle, so very timely. Thank you for doing this. So it's called The New Political Ad Machine, Policy Frameworks for Political Ads in the Age of AI. So to provide some background here, I know we've already seen some issues with um, artificial intelligence in uh, ads. So what, what is it that you're looking at on the automation on advertising and messaging? And, and give us kind of the gist of what you're working on in this paper. So maybe I can start at the, like, the 30,000-foot level with sort of an embarrassing admission, which is that we, I think, are in the business of data-driven public policy, uh, or at least we should be. Um, working in academia, trying to stay close to what academic research says about various different issues in tech policy, and then developing a set of recommendations based on that. I think the embarrassing admission is that I think that's actually harder to do in practice for a bunch of different reasons. Maybe it's just like report organization or something, but it's harder to do in practice than I might have thought. And I feel like this is the first report that we've really generated that we've always done, I think, to some extent, but this report, we like really tried hard to stay very closely to a specific organizational structure where we said, what are the things that people have alleged as harms about generative AI? What does academic literature tell us about those harms? What can we learn from what the research actually shows? And then based on that, what are the right set of policy recommendations for the direction that we might go in? And the basic thing that we found is that for harms like scale or authenticity or personalization, most of the academic research su suggests that those harms are likely overstated. I want to be really clear. We're not saying you shouldn't pay any attention to potential risks in those areas. That's not what we're saying. The point in our report is that the current conversation around generative AI and harms, we think, tends to over-rotate toward the harmfulness of those things. 
Um, we did find two areas that we think maybe get not quite enough attention. One is bias that obviously has like gotten a decent amount of attention. Um, but, but we really think the research does support that that's an area of potential harm. And the second, which has gotten really, I think, almost no attention, is the potential impact of generative AI technologies in smaller and down ballot races. And so then based on that sense of the literature about sort of what the literature suggests is likely to actually be harmful and what the literature suggests maybe is a little bit less impactful, we develop a set of 10 recommendations across two categories. The first is that public policy should target electoral harms um, rather than specific technologies. So rather than singling out generative AI specifically, we should look at a range of electoral harms that may or may not involve generative AI technologies and target those. And then the second bucket of recommendations is around learning. And that's for the reasons that I was saying sort of at the outset, like the research does point in a particular direction, but we don't believe the we don't believe that it does so in a conclusive way. Like that there's, there's really a lot more to study about um, each of these potential harms and about how generative AI plays into them specifically. And we have an opportunity, I think, to track that more closely and to develop smarter, more more data-driven public policy going forward. So one of the things I love that you talk about in your recommendations is you start with something that isn't actually a technology. It's something that we need to do as a protection of democracy, which is Congress and states should outlaw voter suppression. And you recommend passing new legislation you know, specifically for that. But And I am 100% for that. But one of the things I'm concerned about, and you address this a little bit, is getting these ideas out there, perhaps using AI or just in general, as we've had you know, problems in the past where um, information is put out into the election cycle that isn't necessarily accurate. And if generative AI somehow is an exceptional enhancement on that, how, how quickly do you think we can get that retracted? And so there are kind of two questions. One is, what do you do to like basically pull that back if that's even possible? And then the second one is, is you know, from a legal perspective, do you do something that is like a big enough fine that these people feel like they, they have a, they don't, they don't have any incentive to continue to do that? That's, I mean, that's kind of a nutshell thing of when I was reading your piece of like where you guys are really heading on this is trying to like make elections a better thing for people to actually participate in. Okay, there's there's a couple answers to your, your a couple ways to answer your question. So, uh, first, you're right that that um, what our first recommendation in the report is calling for uh, a federal ban on voter suppression. I think this was this is something that we've called for in previous writing, and I think it really I don't want to speak for Matt, but this really it really surprised me when I when I learned that there is no federal ban on on voter suppression and. Um, so we we uh, actually call for sort of reviving a bill that was originally introduced by then Senator uh, Barack Obama um, uh, almost I think, 15, 20 years ago that would be narrowly targeted at the, the sort of time, manner and place of elections. So falsehoods about the time, manner and place of elections. As you said, this seems uh, a really important sort of step to generally protecting the health of our democracy. And, uh, you know, as we, as we point out in this report, is more targeted at the underlying harm rather than a particular technology. It doesn't really matter if that that falsehood, that, that bit of voter suppression is done through generative AI or through um, just a good old fashioned lie. What we care about is the harm. Now, your your question about what can we do about the 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 lies that are told in an election? It's a really good question, and um, 
it, it's 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 a hard one. Um, so one of the things we called for we call for is um, uh, f- flooding the zone. Uh, so this is this is uh, this goes back to a, a Steve Bannon quote. Um, I think he said his, his general approach is just flooding the zone with shit. Um, you know his uh, you know spreading all sorts of tr- of lies and, and various falsehoods. Um, but here we we say that there should, we should that that uh, uh, government state governments uh, federal governments should flood the zone with with good content with 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 true content i think this is rooted in in a real sort of underlying kind of assumption about how free speech needs to work which is you can't really count on stopping all bad or problematic speech nor should you necessarily want to but you can sort of outcompete that with with good with good speech and so um, I think I, I would be a little bit wary of, of sort of any intervention that that would, uh, you know, assess a fine for just a generic sort of falsehood. But um, that doesn't mean that there aren't sort of other ways that we can sort of try to improve the health of of, uh, uh, of uh, the information system. That's very altruistic of you. Because I think part of the challenge that we always have when it comes to campaigns is part of it is, you know, we think of civics class and it's part of democracy and then you realize it's a multi-billion dollar business. So uh, let's go into a little more of the meat of what you guys actually say once you say, all right, well, we do have some technology that's possibly going to challenge some of the outcome. Can I just add one thing to that? Sure, absolutely. To that point. Um, yeah. So I think I would actually challenge slightly the premise of the question um, okay. in that our research showed that cheap fakes probably actually aren't that influential. And so that is just the the idea that they are is repeated over and over and over again and gives us this perception that this is a problem that requires really stringent solutions. So like if you were to prohibit cheap fakes, if the government were to prohibit cheap fakes, that would almost certainly be struck down on First Amendment grounds. But let's just say let's just even say that it's that it's feasible legally. That kind of a strong remedy seems out of step. We think with what the literature actually says about the impact of cheap fakes. Again, our recommendation is not to bury your head in the sand. Like we, we think it's important to continue studying cheap fakes, and then also generative AI might um, might increase the authenticity of of content, of the ability to generate fake images, and might make them more robust. So, might make them actually like more. Um, more believable, moving away from cheap fakes to really more authentic imagery. And I think we have reason to be skeptical about the impact of that as well, based on existing research. But again, it's something that we should study closely. The reason that we get to the kinds of recommendations that we get to is because um, if you if you look if, if you take the research seriously, then you wouldn't focus all your energy on prohibiting deceptive political content and trying to get rid of cheap fakes. And that's why the kinds of recommendations that Scott's talking about, about like flooding the zone with positive content, we think is likely to be more productive. Oh, no, I, I, I get that. There was a great line here. You said, when humans communicate, they constantly reinterpret the message they receive and modify the ones they send. And that, again, doesn't have anything to do with technology. That's the, you know, the, the use of technology to do that. And so it gets to the idea around, you know, the, the images and, and what's working. And that's where you, your initial comments about, and you guys focus very early on in the, the paper about scale, authenticity, personalization, and bias. And these are not issues that are just happening in campaigns. We're having, you know, this is something that's happening throughout, well, for a lot of things in, in 
generative AI is helping enhance that. So one thing that I, and you, you did a lovely job of working through this because there were so many different ways. Let's talk about the digital advertising platforms because I think that's the thing that's kind of top of mind in, you know, um, in this space, not necessarily what's going on in, 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 I don't even know if we call it mass media anymore. I'm not sure there's a delineation. Uh, but the idea of, you said there's key, there's three key differences in the way that these get handled and you, and you really go through it. And it's, it's interesting because it shows how much of this challenge is like, you know, do you tag these people out on terms of use? Do you get them in, you know, in, in different actions? So first you say Google uh, requires disclaimers. And I, I love that idea from a legal perspective, because then you can be like, I can throw down the yellow card, but I worry again, to the point of like, once the information's out there, it's hard to kind of grab it back once it's been said out loud. So you talk about that. And then also it says in their language that it has to be inconsequential to the claim made to the ad. That seems like a, it seems like it'll be 2026 before we'll ever get something taken down in the area. These are the kind of like, you know, legal jargon tools you're going to have to use to get stuff off of a social media platform. And then you go on to, there's two more. Um, you say second is the difference on how um, how current policies defined AI. I thought it's interesting, you know, Snap says they, color, they cover all manipulated media. And Meta is specifically is going after artificial intelligence. And the third is there's um, the variations on the scope of, of prohibitions. And you, you do a, a really lovely job of diving down to that. But that just shows how much work you guys have had to put into seeing all these like different delineations of how you might have to contact somebody and say, I don't think this is accurate. And then, uh, you know, what, what the action should be after that. So give us kind of the lay of the land there. What do you do if you're in a campaign? And I know you do a good job of shouting out saying, you know, from a positive perspective, there might be smaller down uh, downstream, that's not the right word, but uh, you, people that are in races that are more localized that could benefit from this because normally they wouldn't have gigantic budgets to run multi-million dollar advertising. But then again, so will their opponents. So if you want to do something to take something down that you think is using um, you know, false information, it happens to be AI driven, what, what's the process here? This seems tough. Scott? Sure. So I, I guess I should just caveat this answer that you know the, the report is really focused more on providing a set of recommendations for for policymakers in, in government on how they can um, you know a better approach the the, uh, um, the 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 harms that are best supported by the literature as concerns gender AI. And so we review where some of the platform policy is at the moment, but kind of as you, as you hinted at, it's it's um, constantly changing. And so, in fact, yesterday, Meta announced that they will now be requiring um, disclaimers on political ads that that um, that, that in, include uh, generated imagery. And, um, and actually, I should say, I think, it, if I remember correctly, it's not only AI generated imagery, but it's all sort of generated uh, photorealistic imagery. Um, Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a really hard set of questions that the platforms have to contend with um, as, as we point out here, right? There's all these sort of different dimensions that they need to consider how to define what the, you know, the scope of the problem and, and how they should, should deal with it. And, And it's certainly something that continues to evolve. You, you actually delve into some of the potential tools that have been talked about, and they say you just you don't think that they're going to have the net positive effect that people might think. So one of them is political disclaimers suggest that like watermarks, which everybody's always like. I was like, it's, it's like you have to disprove a negative. Like if there isn't a watermark, then I have to take it down. But a lot of people aren't going to know to actually watermark their stuff. So let's just start with that one. Sure. Yeah. So um, 
So, you know, the, the sort of bulk of the conversation about interventions here is really focused on really three things. Watermarks dis, for, for generated content, disclaimers, and then just total bans. And so, you know, part of our goal in this piece is to kind of get beyond that, th those sort of um, interventions. But we also do assess the very small literature on uh, the effectiveness of those sorts of interventions. Now, I, I should say, like, we, we really don't have any sort of literature on the effectiveness, for example, of watermarks uh, of, uh, uh, on, on generative, gen, gener, uh, generative AI content in political ads. I wouldn't be at all surprised if some of the platforms maybe have some internal research, but we don't have any sort of real public research. What we do have is a small amount of research on political disclosures uh, or disclosures on political ads. You say things like uh, this ad was paid for by a, you know, a certain committee. What, you know, you know, as, as we talked about in the paper, there isn't a great consensus towards the effect or the effectiveness of those disclaimers. Uh, there's kind of research pointing in a bunch of different directions. Some suggest they might be sort of effective in, in, in encouraging people to, to, to you know, think more deeply about who's funding the ad or to recognize or, or in sort of process who's actually behind it. Other research says that these sort of disclaimers are not really effective at all. And that led us to the conclusion that probably watermarks for a, uh, in generative AI content is not going to be a silver bullet solution, right? It's not the sort of solution that's going to really address uh, the whole scope of the concerns about this sort of content in political ads. And you reminded me that at the very end of the paper, you talk about how you'd like to have a repository so you could actually, you know, you guys study stuff. So you could actually look at this and make, there's probably a lot of things that come out of that. You could see, you know, what was effective that year? What were the things that were trending? I think we just had a big election, the, the off-year election, and we're seeing already, you know, everybody dissect what does and doesn't work and what words you shouldn't say out loud. And but then I started wondering, how do you talk these people into giving you the ads? Because it's a pretty much an unregulated, you know, environment there. And like, what would the inducement be to be like, come on, guys, they'd be fun. Be part of us. Like, you know, get this going because it would also be just really interesting stuff to see, you know, how, how, what, what worked in Idaho that wasn't running well in Oklahoma that worked amazingly in New Jersey. Any idea how yeah, you're going so, to get them to do that? Yeah. Well, it's great. It's a great question. So um, already some of the major platforms have political ad repositories or archives, meta, um, uh, Twitter, Google, Reddit, Snap—they all have different forms of, of archives where they where they where they release publicly the the political ads that are run. Uh, what we call for. Um, is is actually a, a government run uh, archive of political ads, and this is, I, I think, as your question is getting at, is 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 because I don't want to have to rely on the the largesse of these platforms to ensure that we have the transparency in this space. I think there's a real public good served by the government organizing and, and, and running this sort of archive, um, and that also is to sort of acknowledge that. Put, standing up something like this is, is a lot of work and it requires a lot of resources. And we certainly don't want to be in a position uh, where, you know, we're benefiting the largest platforms who can more easily do something like this than the smaller ones who may really struggle. Um, yeah. So that, that's the reason that we, that we, we place sort of the burden that we say that the burden should be placed on the government here to, to, um, to, to support the, to, to, to run these archives. Can you imagine there's somebody in the library of Congress being like, choose us. 
them. <laughs> They'd love to run that. Uh, so you go through a couple of, especially some federal laws that have been introduced. Is there anything in particular you've seen introduced that you think hits the mark that we should be watching closely? Is a good idea. I mean, I um, you should tell us why we're, why we're wrong about this. I think you have a different view, but. Um, I was actually pretty encouraged by the White House executive order, which I think is uh, we we had done obviously a lot of research on this before the executive order came out, and I thought the general approach in the executive order actually echoed or mirrored or evoked some of the kinds of language that we had in our report around enforcement of existing law, particularly in areas related to bias and discrimination, for instance. So there's a lot of stuff in the executive order about coordination with the Civil Rights Division at the Justice Department to enforce existing laws um, related to um, uh, existing civil rights statutes. And that strikes me as like exactly the right kind of approach. That's technology agnostic. Um, There are existing laws that you can prosecute. It, um, uh, It will target what we believe to be an actual harm that is supported by research. And so I think that and, and it also is about a coordination function. So like learning more about how AI technologies can, um, what their interplay might be with civil rights. So as to ensure that the way that we prosecute civil rights crimes keeps up with new technological developments. And that really, like there, we have several recommendations in the report that really are oriented around information for prosecutors and, um, and education for prosecutors so that they can build effective cases when people are deprived of their civil rights. Um, There's also a lot of stuff in the executive order around research and report writing. And I think there are people who want there to be stronger government action who see those kinds of um, that kind of public policy as not having strong enough teeth. But we generally disagree. I mean, um, as I said, like the research sort of points into a certain in in a specific direction, which I think suggests that like very aggressive policy solutions that are based on really eliminating speech or constraining the technology probably aren't the right ones. I mean, we don't know enough definitively, but probably aren't the right ones. Um, and also that a lot of this stuff just hasn't been studied enough. Um, that's partly because of actual holes in the research state. And it's also because we haven't lived with some of these spe- specific technologies that long. So we need to do more research in it. So I think, you know, a lot of the government funding for research and support for information sharing seems like exactly the right direction. So I think where you and I differ is that I'm a techno-optimist, but a human pessimist. <laughs> I just always worry that people take something that's amazing, which is technology, and they turn around and do something horrific with it, which I wish they would not do. Um, and the language you're right is that an EO says uh, prosecution of civil rights violations, and there's a direction of the Department of Commerce to start an authentic- on authentication on watermarking. I, looking at the, um, I think it was the Coons Global Charter, there's, there's a couple pieces, and, I, you know, it's just... Because I think at the end of the day, it becomes, you know, what legally sticks and where people don't want to spend time, money and energy getting in trouble. So uh, it's the the language is clear and conspicuous manner statement of communications contained in such images and footage. So they're not specifically, I think, calling general AI on this, but just in general, the whole idea of using something that looks like it's a you know, not accurate information. And I, I, I feel for the people trying to do this. You're always trying to chase the tail of what happened in the last election. And that is part mm-hmm. of. The challenge, and that's why I was, you know, I was kind of looking at the work that you were recommending in that lens of how do we, 
how do we try to get ahead of this? Because we just have been in this spiral of things happening. And I, I love the internet and I hate the internet being blamed for all the last election cycles that have happened because we didn't ever blame newspapers back in the day. Um, but we're, I feel like we're heading right back into that storm again in 2024. And so giving people guidance around, you know, what they're concerned about and AI is all the rage right now. So, you know, they're going to say it's artificial intelligence problem. And then I feel like from a policy perspective, I'm going to end up having to run around and say, all this was a problem before AI. You know, which is you know, a conversation we have all the time, but they need something to blame. It's not that they're idiots. Yeah. So I, th- I, I think that's right. And we're concerned about that as well, which is the, why the framing in the report is around focusing on harms and not on technology specifically. I, I do think, and I also agree with you on being a tech optimist and a human pessimist, but I think slippery slope arguments here can be really problematic in that. We need to understand this technology better with the hope that governance is smarter over time. And we might have disagreements about what smart governance looks like, but like hopefully we all agree on that general proposition that we should have smart governance of technology that is informed by data and evidence. And I think that means we actually need to generate the data and evidence. And it might be that what we do with that down the road is really problematic. And we, Scott and I will you know, critique that if it feels like it's out of step with what the empirics show. But I don't think it is the appropriate step right now for us to put our head in the sand and not want to see the empirical evidence about how this technology is used in practice. And again, that's why I think the, the you know, the executive order can be implemented in any number of ways that would be problematic and kind of out of step with the thrust of the report, of our report. But I think right now, it seems to me like it's not, like it's, it, it, it is a curious piece of public policy is like oriented around pursuing information. And that seems like a good step. You know, there are the, the polls seem to me to be um, do very little. The technology is going to be fine. Or um, in the absence of any of like really concrete evidence of specific harm, do a lot and really constrain the deployment of the technology. And I'm, I'm, I have concerns about both of those polls. And I think to the administration's credit, it feels like the EO falls somewhere in between. Let's get data. And over time, that will help us to learn what next steps we should take. So I know you guys kind of get to this a little bit. If you had a wish list of we're going into 2024 of what you could say, please have this ready to go after the day of the election, 2024, all the information you'd want to get collected, and I'm going to put the government funding part aside because I know that one's a really tough one right now, um, is, you know, what what is it that would be, that would put you on the path? Because you're obviously on a really strong beginning here, but you, you're on a journey that of things that you're trying to prove or disprove that, you know, and, and that's going to ebb and flow depending on what the election cycles are. But that's what you're looking for, are those proof points and those metrics to show, you know, how things either uh, enhanced or influenced these elections. So, what are the what are the tools that you would want to have come the election or, or coming into the election so you can monitor this as it's going along? Yeah, so in the report we 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 offer a series of uh, kind of potential research questions, I guess, uh, places holes in the literature that you know that that point to sort of these unanswered questions that we have, and so I can kind of go through some of them. So you know, I think I think kind of um, as we've been talking about already. We, we don't have a good sense of the effectiveness or the effect of some of the common interventions. So we, we just don't know like what, how 
people uh, interpret watermarks when they see, especially in political ads, do they notice them? What sort of, what, what do they, do they, uh, do they encourage people to think more deeply about the political ad or have the opposite effect? Uh, I think um, uh, more generally, you know, it's, it's funny, we've been studying misinformation now uh, in earnest for, you know, seven years or something. And, um, despite hundreds of studies, there's still a great deal of, of uh, debate about what sort of impact it actually has in the real world on the, the opinions that people have, on the behaviors that they engage in. And so I think we need a lot more, uh, um, you know, we need better understanding of how misinformation or deceptive imagery, specifically in political ads, what sort of effect that can have on, on voters and on elections. Yeah. I'd also put on my wish list more information about how people are using te- these technologies at a state and local level and really the most local level. So there will be just an enormous amount of attention on Trump versus Biden. And I think it, the technology will probably be like not significantly it will probably not be significantly impact impactful in that kind of a race where there's just like such a massive amount of spending and a massive amount of attention. But it might I voted in Tuesday in Durham's mayoral and city council races. It has much more potential to be impactful in those races. And I think the ability to see the way that it's being used and then analyze it and understand the harms and combat them is much more limited in those kinds of races. I don't know for that kind of hyper local stuff. I don't think there's a good, I'm not optimistic and I don't know what the mechanism would be about how to surface that information better. It's really, really hard. Um, Journalists do it a little bit, either people who work at news organizations, which obviously have had their challenges, particularly at the local level, citizen journalism, journalists do it some, but just because of the nature of the technology, it's, it's different from uh, Twitter or Facebook where people are like putting specific text out into the world. It's harder to identify if someone uses a chat bot to generate text that's going to be more difficult to identify. And so I think it's going to be extremely hard to really have an assessment of how this technology is being used at the state and local level and what positive impacts it has and what negative impacts it has. I'm having this vision in my head of you guys starting this big post-mortem election thing where everybody comes since 50% of them are going to lose. You're like, you can have the therapy room over here and they're like, so what do you think it was? You know, and then you can just sort of like take a lot of data and then be like, I don't think that was actually it, but that's interesting to hear your perspective. That's definitely something, I mean, you know, I don't know that that is the kind of thing I think we would, we would really enjoy that we, we you know, we've thought about ways to really try to understand. We, we both, I think, love the state that we live in. North Carolina is an amazing state. It's amazing politically. It's amazing. It's amazing for like a whole bunch of different reasons and um, trying to understand in a deeper way how technology is being used in the state and the right way to govern it based on use feels, I think, is a passion project for us and is also really, really hard to figure out how to get that information and be impactful. So if any if any explain to Shane listeners have an idea, we're excited about. <laughs> so actually, um, as you you talk about this in the paper, but I'm braid for us on the podcast here. Why you find the you're much more optimistic about the um, smaller races, the city council, the more state level race, and the potential of you know a positive uh, mm-hmm. way to use artificial intelligence. 
I think we're optimistic and pessimistic. So less of a spotlight on them, less mm-hmm. content overall, and that potentially means the proportion, like if, if a quote unquote bad actor really wanted to disrupt a local election, it, there are reasons that it, they might be able to do that more effectively. Um, on the positive side, you know, generative AI, I think, has the potential to lower barriers to entry, um, make it easier for people to express themselves um, and do you know, do it cheap, more cheaply and more easily. And that is a positive thing as well. So we, we do deliberately include sections in the report to tr- try to not just have the exclusive focus on harms. Obviously, that is the kind of thrust of the report is to understand these alleged harms, but there are benefits too. And so it is conceivable, I think, that there could be any number of like atrocious use cases at a local context, but it would be important in thinking about the right way to govern the technology to look at positive uses as well. And then ideally to try to come up, it may be impossible, but to try to come up with regulation that keeps as much of those use cases as as you possibly can while also mitigating some of the risks. So you guys, I really appreciated getting a little peek at the paper ahead of time. I love the work that you're doing, and I'd love to stay in touch, as I imagine a lot of my uh, listeners are. So where can we find you? Thanks so much, Shane. So we're the Center on Technology Policy at UNC Chapel Hill. We produce regular reports on tech policy across a variety of different issues. The main ones we we focus on are antitrust, U.S.-China dynamics, child safety, and online expression. Um, And our website is techpolicy.unc.edu. Fantastic. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.